Today, the Way podcast takes us to the letter of James. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll take a look at this challenging, yet often overlooked letter. And it doesn't take long for it to start challenging us. As we discover in the opening verses, temptations and trials may not be bad things. In fact, James believes they are needed for us to grow and mature. They are needed in order for us to walk the way. The bottom line, our trials lead to patience, which ultimately leads us to becoming fully developed, complete, and missing nothing. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome to The Way Podcast. I'm Father Dustin, your host. For the next couple weeks, I thought I would try a slightly different format. As you know, most of the podcasts have been focused on the sermon I gave the previous Sunday, and they've been following the lectionary readings. But I thought, perhaps, for something new, we would try doing a more traditional Bible study. And for this, I have chosen the letter of James. Because I think James is overlooked often, both in the Orthodox tradition and even in some of the other Christian traditions. Outside of perhaps the Gospel of Matthew, there is no other letter or book in the Bible, I think, that really pokes us to walk the way. And as you know, this podcast is called The Way, which means not only that we have the path to God, but also that we have to act on our faith. We have to put our trust into action and actually walk on that path. And James, in many ways, is a very challenging letter precisely because he says, faith without works is dead. And so, I think it's an appropriate letter to look at to figure out how are we to walk the way. So, we'll go verse by verse through James, and those familiar with the Ephesus school will recognize the format because it follows a similar format to the flagship podcast, the Bible as Literature podcast. Although here I don't have a second person, it's just me. So, if you want to dialogue, you can make comments uh, wherever you're hearing this, and we can dialogue in the comments section. So, I'm not as concerned about who James is. The letter is traditionally attributed to James, the brother of Jesus, and he is considered to be the first bishop, if you will, of Jerusalem, or the Church of Jerusalem. And we know that he butts heads with Paul, or at least his followers butt head with Paul. And you can read about that in the book of Galatians, or you can read about it in the book of Acts. Yet, as you know, Father Paul Tarazi, who also has a podcast on the Ephesus School Network, has argued that the entire New Testament is within the Pauline school, and that whoever wrote the letter to James, or perhaps even James himself, wrote this letter to show that he is within the Pauline school. His gospel is the same as Paul's. And so we'll put that thesis to the test as we go through it. One question you may want to keep in the back of your mind is, 
does this sound Pauline? Is this in line with the gospel as preached by Paul? And if Father Paul Tarazi is correct, the answer should be yes, that this letter is included precisely because it falls within the Pauline school and preaches the Pauline gospel, which is none other than Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Now you should also know the name James in Greek is Iakovos. So if you hear about Iakovos, that's the same name as James. But what's even more important, I think, is to know that the name James in Hebrew is Jacob. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't make connections to the patriarch Jacob. So think about this for a minute. So the name Jesus, if we were to translate directly from Hebrew into English and anglicize it, instead of being Jesus, it would be Joshua. Jesus, as you may know, comes from the Hebrew being translated into Greek, and then into Latin, and then finally into English. But if you go directly from the Hebrew into English, the name we get is Joshua, the anglicized version, that is. And Joshua, in the Old Testament, is the one who takes God's people into the Holy Land. He's the successor to Moses. And so I think it's no accident that God has Joseph name Jesus, Jesus, or Joshua, precisely because Jesus is the new Joshua who now leads God's people, freed from slavery, into a new promised land, if you will. But I think it's also no accident that Jesus' brother is James, or Jacob. So Jacob's sons form the twelve tribes of Israel. So, you know, it goes Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob. And then Jacob's sons are the ones who create Israel. They're the ones that have the tribes named after them. And so here in the very first line of the letter of James, it says, From James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, greetings to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Or some people translate it as the twelve tribes in the diaspora. So I think it's no accident that, again, what you have is the idea that in Christ, God has reformed his people, or he has called all the world to become children of God. So just like the sons of Jacob became the twelve tribes and constituted the nation of Israel, or the nation of God, so too this is being renewed. And from James comes these twelve tribes. Now, we can ask, does James think he's writing to the Hebrew or the Israelite 12 tribes, or is he using that in a symbolic way? In other words, what has happened in Christ has reconstituted the tribes metaphorically. In other words, to say what has happened in Christ has reformed or renewed God's people. We again become a nation, a Christian nation. Now, I don't mean nation in the political sense here. I mean uh, children of God, those who walk the way. It's no accident that this Jacob, or this James, begins his letter referencing the twelve tribes. Now, as you know, the diaspora, or the dispersion, whatever translation you want to use, is a reference to the scattering of God's people around the world. And so we know that the Pauline gospel is Paul preaching to the Gentiles. He's inviting them in to be children of God by faith rather than by Jewish observances. So this sounds very Pauline in this very opening 
sentence, if you think about it. This idea that even James is writing to the scattered people who are scattered all around, including those outside the nation or the borders of Israel, or what was traditionally Israel, inviting them all in, in Christ. The other interesting feature about this is, this letter is, quote, from James, servant of God. Now, to us, that sounds nice. We use that quite a bit in English, the term, uh, I'm your servant or a servant, and we think about serving. Now, there's a few different words in Greek that refer to servant. So, I pulled up the Greek here. So, I have the original text in front of me, and the word here used is doulos. And all my listeners should be familiar with the word for doulos, because that's the word we used when we talked about servant leadership or doulos leadership. And this is a word that means slave. And one thing I didn't talk about is the idea of slavery in the Old Testament. And so I think James, being of Jewish descent, would be very familiar with the Old Testament and what it has to say about slavery there. And in the Old Testament, male Hebrew slaves were to be freed after their service, a service of six years, unless they chose to remain in the service of their master. This is from Exodus 21, verses 1 through 2, and then 5 through 6. Now these are the ordinances which you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him for life. And it's very possible that James has this sort of idea in mind, that he is the slave who chooses to serve the master for life. And who is this master? He says, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Greek, kyrios, that's the word for Lord. And this would be the word used for master. So if James is a slave, his master is Jesus Christ, and he willingly chooses him to serve for life, if we have the idea of Exodus in mind. It says, Lord Jesus Christ. Another way of translating that is Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Anointed. As we know, Christ means anointed. And who's anointed? It was the kings of Israel who were anointed with oil. And liturgically, this is sort of what we celebrated in the feast we saw last week, in the Feast of Theophany, when the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ. Liturgically, we think about that as an anointing of Christ, or an anointing of Jesus, making him Christ, or the Anointed One. And as Christians, this is what chrismation is. We are anointed with the chrism, making us Christians, or anointed ones. But here, in the letter to James, he's talking about being a servant, both of God and of this Lord, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on, he says, Greetings to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, or the diaspora. And we've talked about what he means by that. So after that opening greeting, he jumps right in. He says, My brothers, you will always have your trials, but when they come, try to treat them 
as a happy privilege. You understand that your faith is only put to the test to make you patient. But patience, too, is to have its practical results, so that you will become fully developed, complete, with nothing missing. Now, I think you can see right away why this letter is often ignored, or why people may be uncomfortable with this letter. Because right away he says, My brothers, you always have your trials. Now, before we get too far into this, I want to caution my listeners. I know you all will be using different translations, and I believe the New Revised Standard Version will probably say brothers and sisters. And some people ignore the New Revised Standard Version because it includes sisters. And I want you to understand that in Greek, it uses the word adelphi, which means brothers. But this word here is not being used to refer to biological gender. What's being referred to is grammatical gender, and that's different. So anyone who speaks languages that have gender included in them, and this would include German or French or Spanish, you know that when you're referring to the large group, and it's a group of both males and females, you use the masculine gender grammatically. But that's not to exclude females. Now, in English, uh, we would do that in perhaps archaic English. We would say something like brethren. But what we would mean by that is everyone in the group. And so I think if you have a translation that says brothers and sisters, I think that's absolutely correct. That is a correct translation into a modern English. Um, Or here, if your translation just says brothers or brethren, you have to understand that that's a grammatical brethren, and you need to include the entire church, that everyone he's writing to, including males and females. So he says, my brethren, you will always have your trials. And the word for trials here is pirasmos, which means test, trial, or temptation. This is the same word in Greek used in the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That word for temptation, that trial there, it's the same word in Greek. And I think as modern contemporary Americans, we sometimes have an aversion to this sort of word. We have an aversion to this idea that God would tempt us. Or we have an aversion to the idea that a trial could be a good thing. Now, obviously, when you have a court trial, what you're doing is you're testing the evidence, if you want to think about it that way, to see if it holds up. You want to see if the evidence really does show that a person is guilty or not guilty. And I think James is using this in a similar way. You will always have your trials, but when they come, try to treat them as a happy privilege. In other words, these trials are here to test you, to test to see if you have that endurance, to see if you have matured, or if not, to kind of poke you into becoming a little bit more mature. There's a saying, and I wish I could remember where I first heard it, because I've used this quite a bit in sermons or in writings, and I can't remember where I heard it, but it's good nonetheless. And the saying basically goes that a seed can't grow into a plant or a tree unless it first pushes against the dirt. 
as you know, to plant a tree, you take a seed and you put it into the dirt and you cover it. But in order for that seed to become something substantial, to become the plant with beautiful flowers or a big strong tree, it has to push against the dirt. In other words, it needs that resistance in order to become healthy. If I remember correctly, I think scientists have done studies on this sort of thing. And I believe they have shown that if seeds don't have that resistance, they don't grow up healthy. And I think James is saying the same thing here. Whether we can think of this both as being human, unless we have that resistance in life, we won't become strong, healthy humans, or even spiritually, that in order to become spiritually mature, we need those trials for a little bit of resistance. Now, whether those trials are external or internal remains to be seen. Uh, James doesn't make that clear here. He will talk about this later in the letter, and we'll see. But in this case, it could be both. But he says, when they come, try to treat them as a happy privilege. You understand that your faith is only put to the test to make you patient. So here, faith. This is the word pistis. And I hope my listeners understand that faith here is not a belief. That's probably a bad translation of pistis is belief. Because what James is talking about is not a belief as in, I believe this set of doctrine or these dogmas or this creed. What he's talking about is more akin to what we would call trust or loyalty. That we have our trust in God or our loyalty to God. And our trust or that loyalty is put to the test only to make us patient. And patience is hard. Patience is very hard for us as Americans in this very quick fix world. We want things done now. We want it to happen now. We don't want to wait. And so the idea of patience, especially if we are to become mature and walk the way, patience is very key. And oftentimes the only way to get patience is to be tested. And then he continues, but patience too is to have its practical results so that you will become fully developed, complete, with nothing missing. So you can see here that James is talking about a progression. It isn't about accepting Christ at an altar call and then being saved, but it's about a growth to maturity that starts with a test, a trial, some resistance, and we grow to learn patience. And then eventually that patience helps us become fully developed, complete, with nothing missing, as James says here. And I think this is hard. This is very hard for us. There was a rabbi who became very famous writing books about counseling. His famous book is called Generation to Generation, I believe, if I remember correctly. But the author's name is Edwin Friedman, and he was a rabbi that also taught a lot of leadership courses. He has a book on leadership, and he taught leadership not only to clergy or to churches or synagogues, but also he taught leadership to four- and five-star generals in the American military. So he was very well-known as an expert in leadership. And one of the things he talks about is leaders 
have to have a backbone. For him, one of the failings of leadership in the modern age is that leaders tend to empathize too much, and they end up feeling sorry for those they're trying to lead, and their pain threshold falls. And when this happens, that means there isn't much resistance, or leaders aren't able to provide the resistance needed for their congregations, for those under their authority to grow. A leader sometimes has to be the one who provides that resistance, that trial, if you will, in order for those underneath him to grow up a little bit. And so instead of a leader having empathy, Edwin Friedman talks about leaders need to take responsibility. They need to talk about responsibility. What is our responsibility in any given situation? And what's the responsible thing to do? Or in a given situation, what is the responsible action to take. And I think he's on to something. And I think he's exactly in line with what James is talking about here. These trials are put to us in order for us to kind of wake up and realize our responsibility. And that responsibility will hopefully allow us to mature, to become fully developed, complete, with nothing missing, as James says. So I'll stop there. That's the end of verse 4, and we'll pick up with verse 5 next week. But the question I give to you to think about as we start this book of James is, what trials do you have right now in your life? What trials do you have spiritually? And what sort of responsibility do you need to take in order to overcome those trials, in order to learn patience, in order to grow, mature, or as James says, fully develop to become complete with nothing missing? That's your homework, to think about that. And we'll look more at what James has to say next week. Thank you and God bless.